for many reasons. But one of the reasons is it, it's because it's, it's about joy. Joy is the goal in mind when Paul writes to the Philippian church. He writes to them from prison. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I wanted to create the best environment to, to get somebody that was called to be a writer, to be the best writer of Hallmark cards, I think the last place that I would place them is in prison, right? I mean, think about it. If you wanted somebody to write really good cards, you'd probably want to send them to the beach, some place with sand and blue water. Um, at least that's what I'm picturing. But for the Lord's purposes, which are not our purposes typically, he sends Paul to prison. Now, what you have to remember is that Paul's not in prison because he broke the law. Paul is in prison because he proclaimed the gospel to a group of people that he cared very deeply about. He cared very deeply about the, 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 the Jews in Jerusalem. And two people, two groups of people, two places that Paul had in his heart to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ were Jerusalem, because he was a Jew. He was from those people, and so he wanted to proclaim the truth to the people that he's from. And that makes sense. If you remember what it's like before you were walking with Jesus, and you see how God has miraculously set you free, you want to go back to the people that you know that are in the same spot that you were once in, and you want to share the truth with them. You want to set them free, just like you've been set free. And Paul is in that way. But there was another place that Paul wanted to go to, and that was Rome, because it was the capital, because it was the capital of an empire that was the largest empire in those days. So what you want to do is be strategic about it. You want to go to the, the center of life as it is known. Now, what would you think would be the capital or the place of most influence in, in our country? It, it could be, maybe you would think of it as Washington, D.C. Maybe you would think of it as many do. Well, if it happens in California, wait a couple months and it'll be going on here. Whatever you think is the place of most influence, that's where God many times will send believers to proclaim the gospel. Maybe in Iron County, it would be in the capital where, where our county seat is. But the point is, is that God, his plans are above our plans. And many times to, to proclaim the truth to people, he will send us to uncomfortable spots. Well, we talked about last week from Acts chapter 16, where Paul had actually planted the church in Philippi. And when he got there, he reached a place where there was lots of opposition and and because of that, there was all this turmoil. But what we know is there were very few Christian believers. Uh, there were zero Christian believers, but there were also very few Jews. And what Paul would do when he went to a town is he would first go to the group of Jewish people because they had the law, and he could proclaim the truth from the purpose of, okay, here's God's law that he gave to his people, and here's how he fulfilled it, fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. And so he would proclaim that you no longer have to follow a set of rules of do's and don'ts, but now you've been set free by the gospel. Jesus paid it all for your sins when you broke the law. And so now you can move forward in this freedom as a child of God. And many times they would reject Paul. And so he would say, okay, that's fine. I've now told you the truth. My, your response is not up to me. Uh, it's up to you. And so now I'm going to move on to a different group. And he would go to the Gentiles. So in Philippi, he had planted the gospel. There were many there who had started to believe. And at the same time, there were people that opposed him. 
But before I get off track, let's begin uh, where we left off last week. I'm going to start in verse 3. Uh, we finished through verse 8 last week, but for uh, continuation purposes, I'm just going to start in verse 3. Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in prayer of my always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he, speaking of Jesus, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think of this, excuse me, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of this grace. So Paul says, number one, you're in my minds. That's kind of what we talked about last week. Paul had these believers in his mind. He was thinking about them. It's nice when you know people are thinking about you because it reminds you that you're not alone. And when people will text you and say, I was just thinking about you, how you doing? It, it, it's a shot in the arm if you're being discouraged at the point where you think that no one cares. So Paul tells them, I'm thinking of you. Every time I remember you, I'm praying for you, and I'm giving thanks for you. So that's number one. Number two, he says in verse 7, he says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you, because I have you in my heart. He didn't just have thoughts about these people. These people were so close to him that he was thinking about them, and they were in his heart. He cared for them deeply. And so because of that, he prayed for them. So then he says in verse 9, he says, This is my prayer. This I pray. And this is what he's praying for the Philippian church. He says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. Verse 9, he basically says that he prays that their love would abound more and more. Now, that word abound means to basically, like your, my three-year-old would do, if I put a cup on the table and I gave her the gallon jug of milk, and I said, fill up your cup, what do you think it's going gonna, it's gonna to abound? It's going to overflow. She doesn't have any control. She's just going to pour into that cup until there's a mess all over the floor. So that's what that word abound means. He says, I pray that your love will overflow and then he, to accentuate it, he says, I pray that your love may overflow more and more in what? He says two things, in knowledge and in discernment. He says, I want you to understand the will of the Lord. I want you to have a, a head knowledge of what God has for you, what he has done, what he wants to accomplish in your life now, and then what he is going to do in the future so that you have hope. But he says, I also want you to, um, on top of this knowledge, I want you to have discernment. Now, the word discernment is not something I, I typically hear every day when I'm talking with people. But the word discernment means uh, to tell the difference between things that differ. You know, discernment is the ability to tell a strawberry from an apple. That's discerning between two different things. So do you think that he's talking about that? Or do you think that he's saying that he wants you to be able to discern between what is godly and what is evil? I think that's the case because he goes on to say, he says, after the comma, he says, verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. 
Now, Paul writes really long sentences, so you'll have to forgive me because I'm kind of breaking them down. But what he says is, he says, I'm praying for you that your love may abound more and more in these things, knowledge and discernment. And then he talks about what he means by discernment. He says that you may approve the things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense. So he says that you may be able to approve the things that are excellent. Now, this is what we want for our children, I hope. We want them to be able to tell between what is good and what is not good, what is sinful and what is godly. And I say that because what that word approve means to be able to tell, have something be tested by sunlight. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago at men's Bible study, but when you see the word approve in the Bible, the idea is, uh, like in, in Paul's day, they would make these Roman or these Greco-Roman statues or, or busts of men, great Roman soldiers and generals, and they would basically fashion it. They would have a sculptor knock it out of a piece of, of rock or marble. And if that sculpture was sincere or that it was approved, it said, hey, you can trust this thing. It's the real deal. But many times people weren't really approving. And so these, these men would make these sculptures and they get to like day 90 of hacking away at this thing and they haven't made any money over these 90 days. And then the nose would break off and they got a decision to make. Am I gonna, am I gonna kind of fudge it a little bit, make it look like it's good or am I gonna throw it away and start over? Well, there were, in those days, an approved vendor list. And on that approved vendor list, uh, they would, by the Roman government, they would either be an approved or a disapproved. And if you were approved, they let you put a sign up there on your thing that says, this is an approved vendor. He's been tested and we, we trust him and so you can. Uh, much like the FDIC is for a bank. You know, it's kind of a government way to say, hey, this is a government-backed bank. You can trust them. So these vendors, many times if the nose broke off, they would take wax and they would melt it down. And then they'd put it up on the nose and they'd start to fix the spot that broke off. Well, if you, set, if you go to the store and you buy that thing and you put it in your window and the sun comes up the next morning and the heat comes through, what happens to wax when the sun hits it? It melts. And the next thing you know, the nose falls off. And you've bought basically something that's a farce. It's not real. It's not sincere, which that word sincere means without wax. So to be sincere means that you're pure. You are what you say you are. And so he's saying, I want you to be able to tell and approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense. So he says, I want you to be able to tell between right and wrong. And that's what we want for our children. And that's what God wants for his children. And Paul having the heart of our Savior, having the heart of the Good Shepherd, wants that for the people that he has led to follow Jesus. He wants them to be able to tell between what is right and what is wrong according to the Lord. No longer according to your parents or their parents or anything like that, but according to the Lord Jesus. And so he says, I'm also praying for your character. Not only that you may be able to tell the difference between right and wrong, I, I know many times I was able to tell the difference, I knew what was right and I knew what was wrong, but also that you may have character that matches up with it. He says that you may be sincere yourself and without offense until the day of Christ, meaning until Jesus returns or you go to see him in death. That's the purpose, that God is taking his bride 
And we are the bride of Christ. Men, that's kind of weird for us. But think about it. On the day of our wedding, most of us, our wives, they were getting ready. They were getting all cleaned up. They took forever to get ready. Or when you're going out on a date, it takes them forever. We get tired of waiting. But you know why they're getting all looking nice? Because they want to be ready for their husband. They want to look nice. They want him to be proud, to walk arm in arm with her. And in the same way, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is preparing us, the bride of Christ, for the day that he returns for that great wedding feast. He wants us to be without spot and without blemish. He doesn't want second best. He wants perfect. And the only way that we can be perfected is in Christ as he does it. We can't do it ourselves. I kind of mentioned earlier that we had our house insulated this week. And as we did that, basically there's dust everywhere. And most of the time they blow in insulation. They do it when there's no, you know, when there's no furniture in there. They do it before the house is all built and done. But what happened was when they did this, they created this dusty mess. And I heard somebody say one time, and it kind of gave me some wisdom in this situation. They said, uh, trying to clean up our own sin is like sweeping a dusty room. You don't really clean it up. You kind of just spread it out to different spots. And if you've ever used it like a whisk broom and started whipping that dust around the room, yeah, the floor's clean, but no, nothing else is anymore, right? And it kind of clouds up and it puffs up and it lands on every flat surface. So then you've got to go to work on that. And if you do it wrong, then, then it's all over again. It's on the floor now. So how do we clean up these dusty messes of sinful lives that we have? Well, we can't. But when the, when the Holy Spirit works, it's like an anointing oil. When we cleaned up our home yesterday and the day before, instead of trying to sweep up the mess, we used water. And we used this, this rag that was wetted down and we would wipe the surfaces. Not sweeping, but soaking it up and then rinsing out the rag and starting again. And it took longer than if we had just took a leaf blower in there, which was what I wanted to do. But the reality is, is that when God wants to cleanse and sanctify us and change us, it's not the work of one or two days. It's a dusty room. And so God, by his spirit, wants to impart to us the wisdom and the ability, and he wants to anoint us so that when that sin is removed, it's not just moved to a closet somewhere, but it's completely removed. It's gone. We no longer even want to go there. And when he does that, it's perfect. It, it works. And that's not to say that we won't be tempted to go back there again. That's to say that sanctification is a process. And so... He says, I want you to be able to approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without wax. He wants us to make that, us like that perfect sculpture so that when the sun tests us, our nose doesn't fall off. But also, he says, I want you to be without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So that should be our single-minded focus. If you want God to cleanse your life, Here's the purpose that he cleanses our life for, so that our lives may be to the glory and praise of God. The Pharisees wanted their lives to be cleansed so they could show off. They'd go out and fast and they'd groan in the middle of the marketplace, oh, I'm so hungry. Or they would pray these big long prayers on the street corner. They weren't doing it to glorify God, they were doing it to glorify man. It just happened to be that they wanted to glorify themselves. And so God is always sifting through our our. Uh, reasons for doing things. And so he says, I want you to be filled with the fruits of righteousness, not so that I may be famous, Paul speaking, not so that, you know, our particular church will be, you know, popular, 
but so that there would be glory and praise to God. And so keep that in mind. This is Paul's ability to get to the place of joy is that he had this single-minded focus. He wanted to bring glory to God. And so in verse 12, as we continue, he says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul had this great desire to preach in Jerusalem. And because of that desire to preach, he went there and he did it. But he says here in verse 12, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So if you get a chance this week, read Acts chapter 21 through 28, because the things that he just so briefly mentions are seven to eight chapters worth of hardship for him. Paul was preaching the gospel. He was called by God. He loved the Jews, and so he went to the central place of Judaism to Jerusalem. And while he was there, he proclaimed the gospel. You don't have to do good deeds, but Jesus paid it all for your sins. Trust in him and you will be saved. And they were like, what? This spits in the face of everything we've ever done to follow the law. You're saying that I can be saved apart from my works? That's not what the law says. But we read in Romans that the law was never meant to save man. It was only meant to show him that he needed a savior. And so as you see this, you see that Paul goes and shares this good news, and it is good news. And because of that, while he's there and he goes to worship in the temple, they falsely accuse him of bringing in a Gentile, which was forbidden. You could be put to death for bringing a Gentile into the Holy of Holies of the temple. And so on trumped-up charges, they put him in confinement. They actually are so mad at him that they want to beat him and scourge him and interrogate him. They turn him over to the authorities. And from that point, the authorities find out he's a Roman citizen, so they don't beat him because they could be put to death for that. And as a result of that, he goes through trial after trial after trial, like a judicial hearing, to see if they can let him go or see if they're going to put him to death. And he keeps appealing to Caesar because he wants to go to Rome and proclaim the gospel. So Paul is a preacher. He's like a Billy Graham. So he gets to... Um, the point where he's getting ready to go to Rome, they're going to put him on a ship. And when he gets on the ship, as the, the boat is sailing at the wrong time of year, and he warns them, look, the Lord has shown me that we're going to, we're going to crash. This ship's not going to make it to its destination. And none of, nobody listens to Paul because he's just a prisoner. Who would? And as he's going across the sea, <laughs> the ship runs aground after blowing to and fro because of the big storm that comes up runs aground, as the, new King, or the King James would say. It hits the ground in a shallow spot, and the ship gets rocked, and they start throwing down anchors trying to save the ship. They're throwing things overboard. Next thing you know, the ship crashes, and it explodes, and they, they all end up in the water. They're overboard. And then because of the wind, because they're all floating on logs or whatever pieces of the ship, they end up on this island called Malta. And when they go there, I can't remember which it is, but basically uh, either the king or his son is sick. And so the, the, the leader of that area says, hey, hey, my relative is sick. And Paul goes in there and by the power of the Lord heals this man. And because of that, he gets to share Jesus with him. So even in that, 
even in the, the, the ship being wrecked, the furtherance of the gospel. And then he finally makes it to Rome, which he sees as his final destination. God has sent me here to proclaim the gospel. He is thrown in prison and not allowed to proclaim the gospel like he would typically do. So what do we do? What does Paul do in that situation? He gets thrown in jail. He doesn't get to do what he believes is God's calling on his life. He's chained, literally, to people. So have you ever felt like God has given you something to do and everything in your life is hindering you from doing that thing? Paul didn't look at it like that. He said, everything that's happened to me has happened and has actually worked for the furtherance of the gospel, which was his main life's focus, was to proclaim the gospel. He says, so that it not only has it furthered the gospel, but verse 13, he says, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. Now think about it. There's a guard in the palace of the Roman emperor. No one gets to go in there and share the gospel. But if you get thrown in jail, you get to share the gospel. Uh, now, they weren't saying, hey, you should proclaim the gospel, but Paul, that's all he knows. He's already in jail for it. What are they going to do, kill him? That's kind of his mindset. If I die, he's going to say this here shortly, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So either way, it's a win-win for me. And I say that because he continues and he says, and most of the brethren in the Lord that are already here, having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear because I've not been afraid to proclaim the gospel even though I'm in jail, even though they could kill me. Other believers are seeing me and they're going, hey, if he doesn't have to be afraid, I don't have to be afraid. I'm not in jail. He is. The worst they can do is throw me in there and apparently God can use me if I go to jail. How cool is that? Now, who sees it as their favorite thing to think about maybe having to go to jail for doing the right thing. Well, nobody wants to go to jail. But if God allows you to go into something that you feel is a jail, it does not mean that he doesn't love you and he's done using you. And I say that because just this week, I heard the testimony of a Muslim from Egypt that decided to follow Jesus. And the circumstances, I could tell the whole story would take forever. But it was an amazing story, and I read the book. And I got to meet this guy for the second time. But basically, in the 80s or the late 70s, he got saved. And after that, he was so touched by the gospel that he started telling everybody, to the point that when he was riding in a taxi cab, he would talk to the taxi cab driver about Jesus. Hey, do you know Jesus? And the man was driving his taxi cab goes, no. And why would you be a Christian? You're a Muslim. You know, show me a Muslim that's converted to Christianity, and I'll go to church with you. He goes, I'm one. Well, he goes, well, prove it. Well, how do you prove that, right? Well, on your license, when you live in Egypt, you have to check one of two boxes, Muslim or Christian. His said Muslim. And not only that, but his given name was Muhammad. So there he is, a man that was a Muslim, became a Christian. He goes, look, I'm a Christian. I wouldn't tell you about Jesus unless I was. And so he, he tells this taxi driver that. And the taxi driver goes, oh, okay, well, tell me where you go to church. So he's so excited, he tells him where he goes to church. Well, little did he know the taxi driver wasn't going to go to church with him. Instead, he turned his name into the secret police. Hey, this guy's evangelizing. He's sharing Jesus with people. And he was a Muslim converted to Christianity. 
So now he's an infidel, right? So he could lose his head, literally, for proclaiming Jesus. So that's discouraging. Except when he got to jail, he was excited. He was excited, not because he was in jail, but because his desire, more than anything, his single focus in life, he knew his reason for being was to share the gospel with everyone. So while he was in jail, they put him in solitary confinement. But he had this little thing, like you see in the movies, they slide it open, and people started hearing about this guy that's in solitary confinement. They started asking about him, hey, who's that guy? What'd he do? Like, we're in an Egyptian jail. He must have done something pretty bad to be in solitary confinement. So they start asking around, like, why is he? And nobody knew. There's all this intrigue. So they go up to his door, and they go, hey, why are you in here? He goes, because I'm a Muslim that became a Christian. They were like, What? Why would you do that? And so he starts sharing with them how the Lord spoke to his heart, came to him in a dream, and started showing him that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior. My point is, every time he shared his faith, people got saved, number one, through a slot in his door, and they were emboldened to share the gospel because this man was willing to go to jail for it. How cool is that? Faith begets faith. And so in the same way Paul is saying this, he says it's, turned, it's become evident to the whole palace guard. The, the guard that was chained to him day and night, they would take six-hour um, posts and they would have to be chained to Paul so he wouldn't get free. And so while they're chained to him, can you imagine what Paul was doing? This is the same guy that wrote in First Thessalonians, he says, pray without ceasing. Oh gosh, I'm chained to a guy that's going to be praying the whole time. You know, to a person that doesn't pray, that's annoying. That can wear on you. That can make you angry if you're against the Lord. This guy's just sitting here praying. Not only that, but I guarantee he was doing more than praying. He's probably telling them, hey, you, you need a personal relationship with Jesus. Asking them about their past, like, hey, do you know the Lord? You know, and all these questions that drive unbelievers insane, they don't get to get away from it because that's their job. They're chained to a living, walking, talking Billy Graham the whole time. And so as he's sharing his faith with them, uh, it implies in chapter 4 that many of them got saved. They started believing in Jesus. And these are all authority figures. Imagine if the Secret Service all gets saved. You know, the president doesn't get to stop hearing about Jesus because the Secret Service, the people that are there to keep him safe, are not only caring about his physical safety, but they, wanna, they care about his spiritual safety. And so, um, anyway, he says, Most of the brethren, verse 14, in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 15, some, he says, indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Not the store, but from goodwill. <laughs> Sorry, can't help it. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. He says, what shall we say then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul's most greatest joy was getting to fulfill the calling that God gave him. And that was the, the calling to share Jesus with everybody. Unfortunately, we get this idea that that's only for guys like Apostle Paul. 
and, and pastors and worship leaders or evangelists like Billy Graham. But what I want to do real quick is turn with you to Mark chapter 16. It's the last chapter in Mark's uh, account of the gospel. And in here we have a very familiar passage. It's the Great Commission. Many churches have it on the door as you walk out. Many of them have it on their, their mission board like we do. Um, but but what, what I want to point out this morning in Mark chapter 16, this is what Jesus told his disciples. This is after his resurrection, verse 14 actually. He says, it says there that later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So these are the, the ones that heard Mary and, uh, and the other lady that was with her and they said, hey, we saw the risen Jesus. And they're like, uh, I don't know. Like that, that sounds great and I hope that's true, but I, I don't really believe it. So he rebuked their unbelief and then verse 15, and he said to them this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He said that to the, these apostles, but he also said it to the other disciples that were there. But what I want to point out is it does not say this, go to church and hear the gospel preached. It doesn't say that. It says go into all the world. So it's not a message, it's not a commandment that's given to non-believers. Many times we are, I don't know if we just pray this way or we think this way or if it's just like a, a mental block, but we are praying that God would send people into the church to hear the good news and then they would get saved. And, and maybe that comes from years and years of hearing about tent revivals where people literally were down on their luck and they'd show up at this tent and go, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And then the Lord speaks to them because they were in a situation where they were so down that they were like looking for answers. But we don't live in the United States that's like that anymore. There are more atheists preaching the gospel of you don't have to be chained to tradition or religion than there are Christians. We are called to go out into the world. Every week we gather here, and there are churches all over this neighborhood that gather in the body of Christ to be encouraged, to be equipped for the work of the ministry. That's what Paul wrote in Ephesians. The church is the impetus to equip all of us for the work of the ministry. But then, during the week, the, primary, the, the largest amount of time, we are scattered like seed. I go to Farmington to U.S. Tool. Many of you go to the school district. Some of you guys go down the road to an insurance agency. The rest of you have different places that God scattered you. Even kids, you, you guys are going to your school. You are scattered there on purpose. God doesn't plant you as a Christian in a place without a purpose. He plants you there for a purpose. You are the only one that has an effect on the people you're surrounded by day in and day out. Here's the problem. Many times we look at our jobs, our family gatherings, uh, school functions that we'd rather not go to, uh, school. We look at it as this big, ch we, don't look at, we look at it like Paul in jail, chained. Well, I guess I can't do what God wants me to do. Here I am stuck in prison. And I have been guilty of this for years. God, I want to go and do great things for you. And I'm chained at this job for 40 hours a week. And as I've been studying this, I'm convicted because I, I can't look at it like that. 
there, there are 400 plus people in the, in, the, in the building I work in. And though I would need to be careful about how I use my time and I need to be a good steward and I don't need to waste uh, company time sharing the gospel, many times I can have conversations while I'm working. What am I talking about to them? What, what, am, what lights me up when they're talking to me? And I have to confess to you, when I worked at the gas company about four or five years ago, I found this recipe online. And it was a recipe, many of you have probably shared this with, it's the gospel of the bacon explosion. Okay? And unfortunately, at that time, this bacon explosion, I was so excited about it. There's two pounds of bacon in it. There's two pounds of sausage and there's all kinds of these rubs, and you smoke it, you cook it, and you weave the bacon together. It is a heart attack in a slice. But I made this thing, and I was so excited about it, and it was so good, that when I went to work, I literally, and this is convicting to me, so I, I say this as a joke, but also as a truth, I literally told everybody at work that day. And after that day, I was convicted, because I'm not nearly as excited about Jesus and setting people free from their sins as I am about bacon explosions. That hurt. When the Lord spoke that to my heart, I was like, wow, okay. But that said, God didn't do that so I'd be, feel condemned. And if there's something like that for you, then I'm sorry. That was just, the Holy Spirit whacked me, so maybe you got a little bit of the, you know, the, the resounding whacking yourself. But my point is, is that the Lord, through that, showed me that I, I have my priorities messed up. I, I, that should not be the thing that makes me more excited than anything. 95% of the evangelical church, according to estimates from surveys, 95% of the evangelical church, individuals in the church have not led a single person to a relationship with Jesus. I don't say that to be mean. I just say that to, that's just the numbers. Now, it's an estimate, but I'd say it's probably not that far off. I, I, when I heard that, I was like, I don't know that. I've led that many people to the Lord, if anybody. Most of the time, I feel like it's happened, and I got to be a part of it, but I didn't lead them specifically. Now, I say all of that to encourage you to pray. Because when you pray, God hears and He acts. And He will send people your way that need to hear Jesus. They need, and whether they like it or not. And some of them are going to get annoyed and they won't want to talk to you anymore. That's okay. Some of them will hear it and go, no one's ever told me that. Most of my family goes to church. Nobody's ever shared the gospel with me. Did you know that Jesus died for your sins? You don't have to get all preachy. They're more likely to listen to you than they are to someone who is a pastor. Because as soon as people find out I'm a pastor at work, they like clean it up. All of a sudden they don't act the same around me. It's like I've got some sort of spiritual cooties. But people need to hear about Jesus from people that have received him. People that know what it's like to be set free from their sins. That is good news. When I found out that God could free me from the chains of sin and the guilt and the shame, I wanted, I wanted to know more about this God. And so that's enough with my soapbox. But that was just something the Lord impressed upon me this week. So verse 15, he says, some preach out of envy and strife. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about two groups that were there in the Ro Roman uh, area in, in Rome. There were some that didn't like Paul at all. And so you know what they did? They preached the gospel 
so that many would believe and follow them instead of Paul. They, they, they were contentious against Paul, and they're like, hey, he's got too much of a following. I'm going to start preaching the gospel so that he doesn't have anybody following him, and I've got a bigger church than him, or whatever. And then there were some who preached the gospel because they wanted to make Paul proud. And many of the people in Ephesus, or excuse me, in Philippi heard about this, and they were like, Paul, don't you know all these people? They're preaching the gospel, and they're trying to lead people away from your church. And Paul said, you know what? I don't care. I don't care if people are preaching it out of envy and self-seeking, trying to raise up their own kingdom over mine. And I don't care if they're doing it because they want to please me and the Lord. All I care is that the gospel is continuing to be preached. He says, because all I care about, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense, out of bad motives, or out of good motives, he says, I don't care. All I care is that Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Then he says, verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's thought was, look, if I'm alive, may it be Jesus who is proclaimed for my life. Whether I'm telling somebody specifically about Jesus or whether it's how I work at my job, I want Jesus to be glorified. He says, so for me, to live is Christ. He died for me. How can I not live for him? He says, but to die is gain. And of course, for us that have lost loved ones, we're like, it's gain for you, but I'm, I'm dealing with the loss of my loved one. But Paul looked at it this way. Look, this life is all about suffering. For the believer, this life is our hell. For those who are without Christ, this is the closest they will ever get to heaven. Hell is going to be way worse. So the question becomes, do we desire to be in heaven more than we desire to be here? And what Paul comes to the conclusion of is, I don't know, because I, I mean, right now it's pretty great to be serving the Lord but to die, is he, it's going to be even better. So he's got this kind of wrestling going on inside. But he says in verse 22, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. In other words, I still have the ability to, to glorify the Lord and how I serve him. Yet what I shall choose, he says, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between two things. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ because I'm tired of suffering, he says. That's, I implied that part, but I mean, I, I think that's part of it. I'm hard-pressed. Like, I, I like it here, but I, I really would rather go home and not have to be in pain anymore. I don't want to have to fear for my life. I don't want to have to be threatened and be, you know, he, this guy was stoned almost to death. He, people threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. They drug him out of a town, and then the Lord raised him up from, like, back to life, and he walked back into town. So he had suffered quite a bit of pain. He says, but nevertheless, verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul said, you know what? If the Lord still got me here, he's still got a purpose for me. And that purpose is not only to proclaim the gospel, but to serve the body of Christ. In each one of his letters, he has this shepherd-like desire to equip the saints, but also to encourage them, keep going, don't quit. And when he was in jail, he encouraged people, don't quit. 
when he wasn't in jail. He was writing letters. He was building up uh, Timothy, who was actually a pastor in Ephesus. He says, look, don't leave because it's hard. Stay because it's hard, because God has got you as a general in his army. And he wants you to continue to storm the gates of hell, ripping people from the clutches of hell. Because if you don't proclaim the gospel, people's eternity is at risk. They could be separated from God for eternity. And it's not God's will that anyone would, be, would perish, but that all may come to the knowledge and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to have a relationship with him. He didn't die just for those who decide to follow him. He died for literally everyone. And if you got coupons that are good <laughs> and you don't want them to expire before somebody uses them, you pass out as many as you can. And in the same way, God has written a blank check so that all who believe on him might be saved. And yet we aren't telling people, hey, this is a free gift. It's already there. When I was at Casey's yesterday, that we bought two large pizzas. And the deal right now is if you get a large pizza, you get a, a, a Coke or like a two liter of soda. This is not like the Ivanka Trump or thing where I'm trying to, you know, I don't have any stock in Casey's, you know. Um, but my point is, is that the lady at the front desk she likes free stuff just like I do. So you know what she said to me when I'm checking out? She goes, make sure you get your, your two free two liters. And I go, man, you didn't have to tell me. Thank you. And she goes, I like free stuff too. You know, we've received salvation that is free. When people walk up to us, we should go, hey, did you know that Jesus died to save your soul for eternity? I just want to make sure you don't miss the deal. You know, because this is pretty great news. It's way better than two liters even. Even a Mountain Dew which I'm a big fan of. So anyway, sorry. So he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says in verse 24, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Can you imagine what this message had an effect on the Philippians? They know Paul is in jail, so they sent this man by the name of Epaphroditus to go see Paul, to encourage him. And what they end up finding out is when they get there, Paul writes a letter and he sends it back to them to say, hey, don't worry, because number one, God's answering your prayers, and, number, and the purposes of God are continuing to go forth. And number two, guess what? <laughs> I'm doing okay. God's given me joy in prison. He's pouring out his spirit upon me. He's giving me assurance that he's not done with me yet. And then he says, the things that have happened to me all the way up to this point, they're actually working out for the furtherance of the gospel. In Romans 8, 28, and I keep going back there, he says, all things work for, together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We don't have to rewrite that and say some things work together. All things. If you're put in jail, if you have to work overtime on a Saturday and you can't see your family, God's got a reason for that. So the question becomes, when there are trials that are at the very least allowed in your life, or when there are trials that God has ordained and placed in your life, we kind of cringe at that, guess what? In every one of those trials, God has a purpose for them. And one of those main purposes is that you have the opportunity to share Christ with your coworkers, with your family members, with the people you don't want to be around. You know, I heard a story yesterday about a guy that would get caught in traffic going from uh, 
Orange County to L.A. Or maybe it was, maybe L.A.'s in Orange County. But he, Highway 5 is notorious for being basically a parking lot, not a highway. Cars are just sitting there idling constantly because there's so many people, the population's so great. And there was this one guy that they called the fanatic. And this guy had a dowel rod in his car for when, not if, he got stuck in traffic for when. He didn't say, oh, stink of traffic. He goes, God's got a reason. Who's my appointment? Who's the person that God wants to speak to me or wants me to speak to? He had a dowel rod with a little pin on the end, and he would stick a, a Bible tract on there. He gets ca- ca- caught in traffic, and, he, and the Lord, you know, he would just be sitting there. Cars aren't moving. He's like, hey, I gotta re- God's got a reason for this. He rolled down his window. He'd take that dowel rod and stick it out to the window of the next car over. And they'd roll down their window, take the piece of paper. And by the time they realized that he was sharing Jesus with them, he was three cars up. You know, the traffic keeps moving slowly. Hey, another car, another gospel track. And he'd stick it out. So what do you look at traffic? You know, look, look at all these things that we get caught in. We are so goal-oriented that we can't enjoy the process. God's all about the process. The entire time Paul was in prison going through judicial hearings and caught at sea, he could have been so angry. God, why are you allowing these things to happen to me? But instead, he saw everything as an opportunity. When God allows you to be chained to a job, or young moms many times are like, I'm chained at home all day with these kids. Do you look at it as chains or opportunity? Paul looked at it as an opportunity. I'm not saying that's an easy thing, because I struggle with it every day. I'm surrounded by people. I wish I could go on and do this instead of this job that I've been doing for 25 years. We can look at it that way, but we'll be discontent and angry and no one will see Jesus in us. Or we can say, Lord, why do you have me here still? I want to leave, but why am I still here? Let me use this time fruitfully. And the beauty of it is when you see God use that time where you previously saw it as chains, what's going to happen is you're going to have joy. Oh, there's a reason I'm here. Thank you, Lord. Because hindsight's always 22. We always look back and go, man, God was so great back then. Did you see how he used that situation? But it's way harder in the situation to go, God's good all the time, you know? <laughs> and so we need to be aware of this because otherwise, guess what? You'll get robbed of years of your life. Don't be so discontent with where you're at right now that you can't see that God has a, big, a bigger plan. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul, and uh, we thank